Hello, friends. The show is Stand to Reason, and uh, your host is Mr. Greg Kokel, and uh, that would be me. Thank you for being part of what we do here, and this is not a one-way thing. I need your calls. I need your comments. I need your questions. I need your interaction. That's what makes this show happen. It's not a monologue. It's a dialogue, at least in certain portions of it. And, uh, and so my number, 855-243-9975, 855-243-9975. We see people getting in the queue already. But you have to call during this time, and this time would be my time, which would be 4 until 6 p.m. Pacific time on Tuesday afternoons. And that's when I give you a piece of my mind, and you are invited to call me and give me a piece of yours. Uh, once again, 855-243-9975. A quick update on our realities. Uh, thrilled about what happened last weekend. It was, I, 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 frankly, in Southern California, we had sold-out crowd. And when I say sold-out, in the 2,000-seat auditorium for Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, there were no empty seats. Usually we sell things out and then some people don't come, you know, and so kind of on the fringes you have these empty seats showing, no empty seats. It was filled, and these young people were thrilled. It was filled, and they were thrilled and energetic, and I, I, I find myself running out of superlatives to describe how um, to describe reality, because each year it seems to get better. And um, that's not just marketing and PR. I actually had no idea what was planned for Friday night, except for something very general, and we'll just call it what the team calls it, the late night reality show. And so the setup is like a, a, a the Tonight Show or a late night show with a t- desk and chairs and guests and hosts that interact before the audience and sit down and ask questions. And the hosts are Tim Barnett and Alan Schleeman. And uh, the guests are our speakers for the weekend, especially our plenaries. And uh, they interact and give short presentations. And it's fun. It's funny. It's intense. It's packed with valuable information. I I actually sat in awe of it. And by the way, a thing like that needs to be practiced. You don't just pull this off shooting from the hip. And so on Thursday night, the night before the Friday when we have the main event, we had a dress rehearsal, and we had a bunch of standards and folk come out, about 120, sat in the audience there, tight up around the front of that larger auditorium, and ran through the entire three-hour presentation. Everybody did their thing and worked out a few kinks, and we powwowed afterwards and made some suggestions, and come Friday night, man, it was great. And in two weeks and a day or two, we get to do the same thing in Seattle. By the way, there's 1,075 people that are signed up uh, for that, and that's main auditorium stuff. That means there are 20, last I heard from earlier today, 25 seats left in Seattle in main auditorium. There is some overflow room, so people who purchase after the 1100 limit will be in the overflow, just like there were um, what a couple hundred in the overflow for Calvary Chapel Costa Mesa. I think we ended up with uh, 2023 or something like that, the total number. Uh, 2020, no, it would be 2223. So, so a little more than 2200 at Calvary Chapel. Really, really fabulous um, turnout. And then I, I just enjoyed it so much. I was sitting in the back 
uh, second time through, saw the dress rehearsal sitting in the back for the whole event on Friday night. It had nothing to do with it. I did no presentations on Friday night. I, I, uh, I had nothing to do with the writing, scripting, performing, anything. Uh, it was all the team, and they did a fabulous job. So um, coming up Seattle, let's see, October 14 and 15, we'll be in Minneapolis, November 11th and 12th. And incidentally, that's only six weeks out, and we've got 2,019 people signed up. 2019. Now, that church can hold 4,500. It's the largest church in the state. I'm glad we grabbed Grace Church Eden Prairie for that purpose. But uh, last year, we had 3,300. We're going to blow right through that this year. If you want to sign up, go to realityapologetics.com. By the way, we even have, for Dallas in 2023 in February, we're five months out. We already got 55 people signed up for that. These young people are hungry for good, solid, substantive teaching and speaking, especially if you make it fun for them, and that's what our team does. I've said before, I'm not in charge of the fun because I'm not fun. Just ask my daughters, and they'll tell you that. But uh, we have people that are fun, and they do a great job at it. So uh, just to uh, just to let you know. Incidentally, now this is Tuesday, but on Wednesday morning, this goes out. So I'm going to let you know that Wednesday, uh, September 28th, that would be the day this goes out, which, by the way, is my spiritual birthday tomorrow, 49 years as a Christian. Hmm. At 12 p.m., that would be 12 noon Pacific time, uh, John Noyes will be live on Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube, and he's going to be responding to recent ads. Believe it or not, fasten your seatbelts, truth is stranger than fiction, advertisements that use the Bible to encourage abortion. I have one right here in front of me. came from the governor of the great state of California. Need an abortion? California is ready to help. And then there's a Bible verse. I'll be talking about that a little later in the show, probably the next segment, which will be come out on Friday for you guys. But John's going to be talking about this uh, the day that you get this, if you listen the day we send it out. That's Wednesday at noon. We should be announcing this a week in advance so people can kind of set up for it because we're really catching you late on this. Uh, so noon Pacific time, John Noyes, Facebook, Twitter, and YouTube uh, with his his uh, To The Point Live with John Noyes. Uh, so I'll let you know in advance that Amy Hall will be doing a live Facebook Q&A on Wednesday, October 5th. So that's in a week. So now you've got plenty of... Uh, Notification, 1 p.m. Pacific Time. You can go to STR's Facebook, and if you don't know where that is, just go to str.org, and down at the bottom, all the links are there for you. And you can submit your question, and Amy will answer. And she's the best Bible answer person. She's fabulous. And uh, we do a show together, as many of you know, hashtag STRask. She is the the uh, apologetics answer person at our events and has a table there. And we did a Q&A on Saturday together um, at Reality. We'll be doing the same at the rest of the realities for the rest of the season. But uh, anyway, so that's Amy coming up. More to, more to say about those kinds of things. But I want to, before I go to calls, uh, and I see, okay, this up. Uh, on board in Durango. Uh, is he still 13? No, he's not 13. Is he still four? No, 14. Maybe he's 15 by now, but Kate's, Kate keeps growing. We'll find out in Durango. 
always got thoughtful questions, so we'll be getting to him probably next segment. But uh, this segment, I want to talk about something else. I have a book here that is is really um, a book you need to get uh, because it will help you um, to work out your Christian response to intrusive government regulations, especially regulations that seem to um, go against your convictions as a follower of Christ. All right? The book is called, and I feel a sneeze coming on here. Hold on. I'm back. Woo-hoo! I pushed the button. My team here is laughing. Are you laughing at me or laughing at something else? How is she laughing at me? Because when I sneeze, I let it go. Kaboom. The whole house shakes. Fortunately, I hit the uh, mic switch, so you didn't have to put up with that. Ah, that felt good. The book is called The Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates. And, Amy, can you just check to see if that's available on Amazon, please? The Doctrine of the Lesser Magnus- Magistrates. It is not very long. It sounds kind of hoity-toity, like 104 pages. All right. The author, Matthew Trewella, T-R-E-W-H-E-L-L-A, and Matthew, my apologies if I mispronounce it, but this is a, a careful analysis of the question of how—let me see how best I can put it—how uh, thoroughgoing is the, the command in Scripture to obey the government, because we do have that command. And um, the answer that was uh, thought through and arrived at hundreds of years ago, like 500 years ago, almost, um, is that civil authorities have limited power, and we have limited obligation to obey them. There are times when it is entirely appropriate to disobey. And the doctrine of the lesser magistrates goes into those details because this, like I said, this concept was hammered out during the Reformation under an interesting set of circumstances. And so I'm just going to read in summary fashion, I'm flipping through the pages, to give you a sense, excuse me, of what that, of, of, of how this plays out, at least to give you a thumbnail sketch. And it does relate to a question that has come up a couple of weeks ago when I, I, added a little bit more to, I think, last week, and that had to do with um, when can we get an AK-47 and defend ourselves as Christians, I think is the the way the question was asked. It was the AK-47 question, and uh, I don't know if the AK is the best choice in a circumstance like that. There might be some better firearms, but uh, I shouldn't be joking about this. There is, uh, it's a fair question. And the where where I ended up was I think that we can defend ourselves with lethal force when there is lethal a force being used against us illicitly, all right. And so that's a general rule, and it's just the principle of self defense. And whether it's an individual or a group or a nation, that seems to me to be justifiable. But when it comes to being persecuted as a Christian. That's when I paused a little bit. I know that uh, the early Christians were happy—it's odd to put it that way, but it seemed like they were happy to be martyred for Christ. Not every single one of them, obviously, 
uh, it was a price they had to pay, but it was also a, a badge of honor to suffer and be persecuted for Christ and even to give your life. And so there were those that, I don't know if looking forward to it is quite the right word, but the things they wrote made it clear that they not only were they willing to die for Christ, but they were willingly willing to die for Christ. Um, in any event, maybe nowadays you may, you may not sh- share that sentiment. And uh, so then the question is, can we resist, even on an issue of religious persecution, can we resist with lethal lethal force? And so that's kind of the context, because I'm going to land on that spot here, at least according to the opinion of Reformers, that there is a place for that. But uh, uh, let me, uh, reading here from the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates, to give you an idea what this concept represents, the lesser magistrates, and here I'm reading, and I'll be reading quite a bit. Uh, in summary, as I'm flipping through the pages to get to the application in the circumstance of Martin Luther and soon after that, which led to what's called the Magdeburg Confession, which this particular piece um, is 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 elucidating, it's clarifying, and it's that confession that lays out the theological and moral grounds, the scriptural grounds, for resisting civil governments. But there's a very particular kind of role here, and incidentally you see this in the Declaration of Independence. When in the course of human events, it starts, uh, it becomes necessary for one group of governed people, essentially, to oppose their the one they, that governs them, then if they're opposing, they have to give the reasons for it. There has to be a legitimate justification. In fact, that's what the Declaration is. And, uh, and, and, and so this is what was outlined and clarified in the, uh, in the Magdeburg documents. But there, it was a process getting there. All right. Now, uh, the doctrine is the doctrine of the lesser magistrate. What is a lesser magistrate? Um, the doctrine declares that when the superior or higher civil authority makes an unjust, immoral, makes unjust or immoral laws or decrees, the lesser or lower ranking civil authority has a right and a duty to refuse obedience to that superior authority. If necessary, the lesser authorities even have the right and obligation to actively resist the superior authority. Uh, The lesser magistrate then, and I continue to read here, has a duty before God to uphold the good regardless of the new definitions of law created by the state. And historically, the practice of the Church has been that when the state commands that which God forbids, or forbids that which God commands, men have a duty to obey God rather than men. Now, that's the basic principle there. Remember, it is the lesser authority that is standing between the people and the greater authority, uh, because the lesser authority now ha- is in a position to uh, to assert a higher law against the more superior authority. Now, I, 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 I've been thinking, I've had this book for a while, 
and I wanted to talk about this. I brought the book with me, had it actually packed in my bag, but it turns out last night I watched a movie where this took place. Um, it's a sub-movie. If you like military sub-movies, this was one of the best. It's not The Hunt for Red October, which is fabulous. It's not Hunter Killer, which is also fabulous. This one was called Crimson Tide. And in Crimson Tide, you have uh, Gene Hackman, who's the, the captain of the boat. It's a nuclear submarine. And Denzel Washington is the XO. He's like second in command, as it were. And in order to launch, launch their nuclear missiles, both the captain and the XO have to agree that it's the appropriate thing to do, all the orders considered, etc., cetera, etc. Cetera. Now, there's a complicated set of circumstances in that they face, and there was an order to launch, um, but then there was another order that came in that was not clear if it was a if it was a rescinding the original order, and so. Gene Hackman wants to go ahead and launch. Minor spoilers here. I won't tell you the whole upside, but uh, it's a great movie. Um, and Denzel Washington says, I don't agree. I do not agree. And it turns out that both the captain and the XO have to agree before there can be a launch. It's part of the protocol. Of course, Gene Hackman is furious. And he's demanding then Denzel Washington be arrested and taken to the brig because he's not willing to agree with the captain's decision. But, of course, the rule book says you got to have both agree. And Gene Hackman got so intense about it that Denzel said to him, I am relieving you of duty as the captain of this ship, and I am taking command of the ship according to Navy regulations. So what's interesting here is you've got an interposition of the lesser magistrate, the lesser authority. That's the XO. The captain is the captain of the ship. But the captain was breaking the law. And so the lesser magistrate, the lesser authority, Denzel Washington as the XO, was able to step in and say, no, you can't do that. I disagree. And if you are going to force your hand, I'm taking you out of play. I'm going to replace you. And in fact, he did. And of course, this is right in the middle of the movie. Whole bunch more happens. That's really great and intense. Again, if you like that kind of movie, but it's very intense. And if you think of uh, Denzel Washington and Gene Hackman going head to head, this is 1998 or so when they made this movie. That's good drama. All right. So let me tell you, though, about how this idea is played out. All right. Um, <clears throat> and what I've intimated so far is that the lesser magistrate is interposing by placing himself between some kind of tyrannical rule. may not be a, a tyrant in the broad sense of the word, everything is tyrannical about the person, but someone in power that is abusing their power. And so the lesser authority puts himself in between that individual or the bad law on behalf of the people. So he stands between the people and that bad law or that greater magistrate. By the way, this happened in the state of Florida, where Governor DeSantis said, "We, I am not going to require the people of Florida to obey the decree of the President of the United States 
because that decree, whichever it was, I'm not sure exactly, had to do with the COVID situation. That decree is an unjust law, inappropriate use of power. And I'm going to stand between the people and protect my people from this um, inappropriate use of power. So there's another example of an interposition of a lesser magistrate. Now, um, I, I, I want to give you a little bit of history here because uh, um, the background is really interesting of how this piece of um, philosophical theological thinking kind of um, came to be. And, and what I mean by came to be is this isn't like something someone invented. This is actually from antiquity. The principle was there, but there was a particular set of circumstances in the early 16th century that um, that that forced the issue of Christians being persecuted um, to clarify, uh, biblically especially, the limits of power of the state. And uh, it's called the, the uh, Magdeburg Confession. That's M-A-G-D-E-B-U-R-G. Okay. German, right? Magdeburg. Okay. And so I'm going to read here now from, from a section of the book that describes what set this circumstance up. And we are going to kind of um, touch on in a few minutes this whole question of the use of Christian force um, to lethal force to protect Christians in the, in, the, in the circumstance of Christian persecution, which is the issue of the question that came up a few weeks ago, and the one where I just was not entirely clear. I equivocated on. So I'm just going to tell you what, uh, what these guys did almost 500 years ago. Um, it turns out, now reading here from the book, Martin Luther was rescued from death by the interposition of a lesser magistrate who defied the order of his superior. Um, remember when Luther pounded his 95 theses in the church door of Wittenberg in 1517? I mean, a lot of people didn't like that, right? So Prince Frederick the Wise was the elector of Saxony, and he was a lesser magistrate. His superior, Emperor Charles V, had ordered Luther to defend himself against the charge of heresy and worms in Germany in the spring of 1521. Okay, now this was risky because this was an act uh, that of Luther. This is an act of uh, her heresy, or at least appeared to be, and so he's got to defend himself. And he went and did that, and uh, of the Prince Frederick gave him safe passage, provided or arranged for safe passage. But it turned out Luther was um, Luther was rebuffed. Okay, um, and uh, here apparently Emperor Charles V ordered Luther's apprehension, arrest him, um, and forbade anyone, this is Charles V's words, from this time forward to dare, either by words or by deeds, to receive, defend, sustain, or favor the said Martin Luther, and commanded that the reformer be brought before his court for punishment as a, quote, notorious heretic. Now, of course, this was a death sentence, right? So, uh, though under Charles's authority, Prince Frederick protected Luther, right? Now, uh, so there's an example of an interposition. Um, later, 
Thirty years later, the protection offered Luther by a lesser magistrate clearly had an impact, I'm reading now, on the men of Magdeburg, Germany, because Emperor Charles V imposed the Augsburg Interim in, 19, in 1548. Now, this law was an attempt to force Protestants back under traditional Roman Catholic beliefs, practices, and rule. And incidentally, if you know anything about the history there, there were state religions, and there was a battle back and forth during this time between the Reformation folk and the Roman Catholic folk. And, you know, you know, Mary, Queen of Scots, Bloody Mary, she was one of the Roman Catholics that got power and tried to force Protestants to become Catholics. And so now you have a similar kind of situation. The law was an attempt to force Protestants back under traditional Roman Catholic beliefs, practices, and rule. And only one city in all of Germany stood against the interim, and that's Magdeburg. They defied the political and religious tyranny by upholding God's law, God's word, and the gospel, okay? So uh, tensions mounted, right? And the pastors of Magdeburg wrote a defense of their position for standing in defiance of Charles V, much like the Declaration. Okay, uh, this document later became referred to as the Magdeburg, Magdeburg Confession. Um, but basically, they refused to submit to the emperor, and uh, they were resolute about it because they reasoned the Word of God was on their side, and um, they stood their ground because they understood the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. And then, October 1550, Charles's forces surrounded the city of Magdeburg. It says here that the people of Magdeburg burned everything outside the city walls, I guess in anticipation of this siege, and closed the gates, and the siege of Magdeburg had begun. Now, you might wonder, why do they burn everything around the city, you know, outside the walls? It, it just strikes me from a strategic perspective, and battle, that's a good idea. First of all, you don't want any crops or whatever being used by the, the, the siege army for their benefit. So you have a, a kind of a slash and burn or whatever you want to call it, not slash and burn, but the scorched earth policy there. But also, if you got an army that's going to camp outside your walls, you want to be able to see every soldier. So you clear the ground so they're all visible, all right? Now, what? here's what happened. The siege of Magdeburg lasted for over a year, from 1550 to 1551. Luther's already gone. He's already died. But kind of in the same spirit of Frederick— these Christian pastors in Magdeburg and the town itself were opposing the prince and uh, asserting their authority as lesser magistrates um, based on biblical principles to oppose the king and, uh, and, and uh, stand against him in his dictates, try to force them to become Roman Catholic again. Now here I'm reading from the Doctrine of the Lesser Magistrates, and there's an interesting paragraph here. The siege of Magdeburg lasted for over a year, 1550 to 1551. It says here that the siege ended on November 4, 1551, with favorable terms for the Magdeburgers. They were free to practice their Christian faith. Oh, so the king relented after a year of siege. Why? It says here that 468, 468 Magdeburgers lost 
their lives. So if you're under siege, I don't know, I guess people could starve, but in a year you're probably not going to starve. I don't know. They usually have reserves. But there's a fight. And in the fight, 468 Magdeburgers lost their lives. However, in Charles's forces, 4,000 were killed. Ten times as many, almost. Now, in this text, it doesn't say the circumstances of their death, but it says 4,000 of Charles's forces were killed. Now, I take that to be they died in combat. And what was the nature of the combat? Well, the Magdeburgers were behind the walls. They put archers on the walls, right? Come close to the uh, wall to assault it, to try to breach. You get shot. That's my suspicion. 4,000 were killed. So here you have Christians that are being persecuted for their faith in Magdeburg. They're resisting the persecution. They are besieged by an army, and they fight back and kill the enemy soldiers. That's the way I take this. Now, you can decide for yourself whether taking human life under those circumstances is correct, but they certainly seem to think it was. And so this seems to be an historical circumstance where someone, some group of Christians, were being persecuted for their faith and fought back with lethal force. Continuing here after the siege ended, uh, Maurice of Saxony left Magdeburg and along with other German princes attacked Charles and drove him out of Germany and into Italy. So Charles, Charles fails on the siege, and the rest of them attack him, drive him out. And then Charles V, weary of civil war, granted religious freedom to the Reformers at the Peace of Passau in August 1552, nine months after the siege of Magdeburg had ended. And then, subsequent to all of this, the siege of Magdeburg produced the Magdeburg, Magdeburg Confession, which is the earliest known historical document to formalize the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. Now, if you want to find out what that doctrine was, how they develop it scripturally, etc., that's in this book. That's why I like this book, because it, it is timely, because we are facing lots of oppression as followers of Christ. So this is no secret. This is not, what's the word? This is not hyperbole. This is not exaggeration for the sake of effect. We are experiencing that. The, the kinds of things that we see happening just in general, but also to Christians, that are a defeat uh, 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 or in opposition to basic human liberty. I was telling Amy today, it's, this country is virtually unrecognizable from the country that I grew up with. It's unrecognizable. It is so unbelievably different. In fact, you know, in this movie, I was talking about Crimson Tide. There's a little clip there because of its date of the president speaking out against the Russians who are creating this problem that precipitates this launch command of nuclear weapons for this nuclear sub. And the president was Bill Clinton. And I just had a, a, just a little nostalgia <laughs> Oh, wouldn't it be great to have him back again? Because he was so moderate 
compared to a lot of the circumstances in culture that we're facing now. Okay. And uh, that was a different world, even, you know, in the, when was that, the 90s? Mid-90s, right. Things have changed so much. And so the question comes up and had faced many churches in 2020. What do we do about this edicts, edicts, E-D-I-C-T-S, that have come down from the powers that be regarding church, assembly, worship, etc., in light of the COVID circumstances. Must we obey? Can we disobey? Is this biblically justifiable? All the details are set out in this book, and that's why I think it's really important for us to be educated there. And the details are set out and described based on what Christian pastors, how they reasoned and acted according to reason five, almost 500 years ago. So this isn't just a new trend. And in fact, this principle, based on the details of the Magdeburg Confession, has been played out in a lot of circumstances since then. It's all chronicled here, the doctrine of the lesser magistrates. You may disagree with, uh, with the author and, or even the pastors and others who stood against the powers 500 years ago, uh, but you owe it to yourself to be informed. Um, especially scripturally and biblically, about their arguments and when it is appropriate to just say no to the government. All right, let's take a break, and we'll come back with calls after this on Stand to Reason. What if I'm wrong? Have you ever asked yourself that question? There are times when we feel confident about our convictions, but there are other times, if we're being honest, when we encounter doubts that leave us wondering if we got it all wrong. This has caused many to deconstruct their faith. If you can't give a why to your faith, you won't be able to give a why not to your doubts. In other words, if you don't have a Christianity anchored in what's true, you will always be at the mercy of your doubts. That's why we're excited to announce this year's Reality Conference. Our theme is Seek and You Will Find. We will equip students to navigate their doubts by seeking answers to their toughest questions. Because when you seek answers, you find truth. It's time to examine the foundations of our faith, because a strong faith requires a strong foundation. Join us at one of this year's Reality Student Apologetics Conferences. For more information, visit realityapologetics.com. As a high school teacher, I always had a red pen close at hand. When I wasn't in front of my students teaching a lesson, you could find me assessing assignments, grading essays, and evaluating exams. The red pen played a crucial role in the educational development of my students. With it, I questioned their assumptions, exposed their errors, and challenged them to think critically. You see, a good teacher doesn't merely tell his students that they're wrong. A good teacher shows his students why they're wrong so they don't make the same mistakes twice. He corrects because he cares. Last year, I was scrolling through social media, and frankly, I was discouraged at all the bad thinking that undergirded much of what I was reading. Then it hit me. What if someone applied the red pen to this flawed thinking? And red pen logic with Mr. B was born. 
In the last few months, Red Pen Logic has grown in popularity. Through our engaging and shareable educational graphics and videos, we are helping people, especially young people, assess bad thinking by using good thinking. And we have a lot of fun in the process. So here's your homework assignment. Like the Red Pen Logic Facebook page so you don't miss our next graphic. And subscribe at the Red Pen Logic YouTube channel so you don't miss a single video. Class dismissed. Back at you here, Greg Kokel, and with the callers here, let's go to Cade in Durango, Colorado, late from Minnesota. Cade, it's a treat to talk to you again. Hey, Mr. Kokel, it's been too long. <laughs> yeah, that's well, it was last almost a year ago, Minneapolis, when we saw you there, and you used to live in Minnesota up there in the, uh, I want to call it the Rust Belt, but you called it something else, what, the Iron something or else, right? Iron. Uh, the Iron Range, Range uh, probably north of Duluth or right in that area. Is that right? That, that is right. Yep, right around that. Okay, and uh, you and your family, you moved to Durango, Colorado, and then last uh, last November made the trip by car from Durango all the way to Minneapolis for our reality there, right? Yeah, this this year, though, we'll be taking the plane, which will be a little nicer. <laughs> oh, well, good for you, and I look forward to seeing you then. We've got over 2,000 people already signed up, and that's still, what, seven weeks out, so we're thrilled about that. We had 3,300 last year, and you, you, you know, being there, it was like total mob scene. Uh, yeah. Even even though there was room left, you're going to really, really like this. Uh, this what what our team has in store for the Minneapolis crowd. So I look forward to seeing you there, Cade. By the way, I'm, I was trying to figure out your age, but I mean, every year you get a year older. Is that the way that works? Yeah, I think so. <laughs> I'm I'm 15 now. Now you're 15. Okay, 15 going on 30. All right, Cade. What's on your mind today? Well, I'm I'm calling you, Mr. Kokel, because I am really confused. Um, so to be broad, I'm having a lot of questions and having to try and understand the book of Genesis and how it relates to science. But okay. today I have a more specific question for you. Okay. So for, in order to understand my question, you have to kind of presuppose a view that cancels out young earth creationism. And I'm pretty sure you're an old earth creationist. That's right. Um, from talking to you. And so as, as am I, and as many Christian apologists I know are. So presupposing that, the traditional way to defend the scientific beginning, which helps support our argument for God, like in the Kalam cosmological argument, uh -huh. we use the Big Bang. We use the Big Bang theory, the fact that the universe is expanding, the fact that we had a beginning, um, um, radiation, afterglow, all of that kind of stuff. Right, Am right, I making right. sense so far? No, of course. Right. Yeah, absolutely. Um, more sense than most 15-year-olds. <laughs> <laughs> well, thank you. But anyway, so when we talk about the Big Bang, we usually talk about the beginning portion of it. But in scientific circles, there's also a part that's added on, and it's a big part of the Big Bang theory as a whole, namely how we get to the point where we are, where we have a habitable planet, where we have universe the universe with full galaxies, fully formed stars, etc., right. which is almost like, in a sort of way, it's almost like cosmological evolution, if you want to put it that way, uh -huh. because some of the way they describe it is through, like, 
our planet was a molten planet that formed through asteroids hitting it, and then finally we get water on the Earth. Yeah. And I mean, I mean that's just the start of it. But so here's my question, Mr. Kokel, is when I've looked at um, a lot of more sciencey apologists, if you want to put it that way, Hugh Ross, C. John Collins, Stephen Meyer, they seem to support this view of almost cosmological evolution. Right. And to be clear, they do not support biological evolution. Right. But they do seem to support this theory of cosmological evolution. But within this theory of this part of the Big Bang, there's also contradictions to Scripture. Um, like in Scripture, in Genesis, we find that God creates the earth before he creates the sun, the moon, and the stars. Mm-hmm. But, when we, but when we look in science, what science seems to be showing is that we have stars, moons, galaxies. We have all of this before we even have the earth. Mm-hmm. So it seems that there's some things with the Genesis that's not reconcilable, reconcilable with this cosmological right. evolution model. And it's just, it's really confusing to me how we can just be brushing this aside because we, either we need to kick this to the side and almost put it in the same category as biological evolution, or we need to accept it. But in that case, we have to describe we have to uh, refute the discrepancies between the two. Right. Okay, this is a really perceptive set of questions. There's a lot of things going on here. And so what I'm going to do, we'll take some time and we'll, to parse this out for you, because I think a lot of people are are interested in bringing more order to this discussion, especially when you have young Earthers and old Earthers that are yeah, in play yeah. here, and there's questions about um, not so much not in my view at least, not the integrity or authority of Scripture, but how to read the Scripture the way the authors intended it to be read. Exactly. Okay, so this distinction I just made, though, is an important one, because there are a lot of people who hold one view, and if you disagree with their view, they take it as tantamount to denying the authority of Scripture. Okay, I think that's an unfair assessment, personally. But in any event, you know that that way of dealing with some of this is in play. Okay, and even the you know that the people you just mentioned as old Earthers, like Hugh Ross and Stephen Meyer and Bill Craig, for example, myself, um, all of us have an extremely high view of Scripture. So that's not what's at issue. The issue is how we are to read it, okay? So let me make make um, a distinction here, or a category of consideration. Actually, there's a whole bunch of things going on. You cosmology. Let me let me let me just back up and take it more in the order that you offered it. All right, and and that is um, the the you, you've got Big Bang cosmology, which entails the notion of an absolute beginning of the natural world. Okay, now that is part that is consistent with Genesis 1.1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. So in our worldview and in the scientific assessment, you have an absolute beginning. In that sense, we agree. And this is what the, cos- the Kalam cosmological argument is meant to do. It's meant to trade on the evidence we have in the scientific realm for an absolute beginning to argue in favor of a, a God adequate to that effect the cause, 
adequate to the effect, which is the natural realm, the way we understand it to be, powerful and, and big and blah, 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 all that. I mean, you got, what is an adequate cause for that? It's going to turn out to be something like God. So you can make a broad theistic argument from the scientific evidence employing the Kalam cosmological argument, which you made reference to, to argue that the evidence shows that God exists, okay? And I think that's in place. Now, you have, uh, with insight, observed, wait, there's more to this Big Bang stuff than just an absolute beginning. And uh, But I, I, I'm, what I'm doing at this point is I'm just restricting it to that so we keep that distinct from the rest, all right? Yeah, yeah. And even if, even if somebody doesn't buy, let's say Christians do not buy the whole package that seems to attach to the Big Bang cosmology, it still establishes an absolute beginning, and we can take that piece of information that others are convinced of, who are not Christians, and say, how do you explain the absolute beginning of the universe. Who banged it the Big infers, Bang? Yeah, infers a creator. Yes, it, yes, it, it, it implies a creator. We infer from the information that there's a creator, but it implies a creator, and that's the way our argument goes. So, uh, so I think that's completely legitimate without even going any further with what people do with Big Bang cosmology as the beginning of the universe, then over longer periods of time, the universe unwraps, so to speak, in a, in a cosmological history that one might call the evolution of the cosmos. Okay? Yeah. So, so let's take that next. But I just wanted to keep the first things clear and distinct from the second thing, which is what you referred to as cosmological evolution. Okay? Uh, the difficulty with cosmological evolution is the word evolution. It's a scare word. All right. And so yeah. it becomes easy to begin associating cosmological evolution with biological evolution. And you properly yeah. made the distinction. All right. Um, but uh, I want you to think about, and maybe you've seen something like this before, all of uh, this incredibly complex set of dominoes sitting on edge. And once you kick one domino over, all the dominoes start to fall in this very, very complex order to create this magnificent um, uh, visual effect. All right? Have you ever seen anything like that? Yeah, yeah. I, can, I kind of uh, understand what you're trying to say. Okay, got it. Okay, so, but notice that the entire thing, um, once you kick off the first domino, everything else follows according to the natural laws that apply to it. Yeah. They're mechanistically, but what happens mechanistically is this entire beautiful thing becomes visibly evident. Why? It's because all the initial conditions, let's just call it that, that is the setting up the dominoes in such a particular way, resulted in this amazing thing simply by kicking, having an agent kick off the first domino and everything else followed. So there's a way in which you could say, well, yeah, things changed over time. They evolved. In the, ten, in the maybe 60 seconds it took for all of those dominoes to fall, visually 
everything look different, okay? I think it's a good application or a good illustration of this concept. Um, I do not think it is a problem to think of God setting the initial conditions in such a way that once the once the the in, initial event for which God is the agent occurs, every all the dominoes fall out over a period of time to accomplish a certain universe that is hospitable to life. In, in a certain sense, the physics of that are not complicated. The physics are not complicated. If you set up the initial conditions just so, you're going to get the refined constants of physics of the universe. This is the way it rolled out, and it's the the incredible complexity of the of the of the fine tuning of the constants of physics and other details of our solar system and stuff like that that make life possible here that becomes evidence for a creator. And this is, of course, the design or teleological argument. So what I'm kind of saying at this point is the Kalama argument works for us because science has, is, it seems, very well justified evidence of an absolute beginning, which is what we believe in, and an absolute beginning not only cons- consistent with Scripture, but it requires a creator. Then we've got this radical complexity that we see unfolding from the initial conditions to make a universe that is hospitable for life, and that also seems to be evidence for a creator. But And this is something that the, the scientific community has acknowledged as well. Here's the difficulty for some Christians. It takes a long time for those dominoes all to fall. Yeah. But it is not a chance process. If it were a chance process, we would not be living in the kind of unique highly designed, specifically organized universe and solar system we live in. That's where the design argument comes in. We didn't just get lucky, as Richard Dawkins would say. And so the concept of cosmological evolution is not in the least wise troublesome to me, even though we're using that word evolution, which a lot of people are uncomfortable with. It, it, because it's just like the domino thing. You set up the initial condition, bang, there you go. You get this thing as it all rolls out. So I don't think there's any need to adjust in terms of our, our basic understanding of the design and the creator and everything, because of this scientific information that follows from uh, the Big Bang. It is only a problem if somebody has a very particular understanding of what Genesis 1 means. That's where the problem is, not in the so-called evolution of the cosmos. Now, I I will say this just for clarification, though, uh, Cade, and that is when it comes to biological development, you have an entirely different set of circumstances. Yeah. So you have these kind of big bangs. You have the big bang initially, but then you have the big bang of life from non-life, right? So, and that's a mystery. They don't have an answer for that. Yeah. Okay, and you have also the Big Bang of, of, uh, of um, consciousness. Where did consciousness come from? So these are things that the scientific world, following materialistic principles, acknowledged happened, but have no explanation for it. 
So uh, the biological development, and not only do you have the biological Big Bang, but then you have the complexification of living things over time. And you have this this uh, this um, um, Cambrian explosion where you go from no complexity to massive complexity in a relatively short period of time, uh, given the long uh, the the old Earth perspective. Not a week, but you know, millions of years. But uh, in in terms of that clock it's a very short period of time this cries out for a an explanation that materialism cannot provide what's required is an influx of information and so at the point of life coming from non-life it ain't going to happen just like dominoes falling it's got to have new information that is inserted into the world for life to begin and I'm speaking very generally here. I mean, new information could be de novo, bang, God just creates that individual thing, like man from mud, or he can insert genetic information into into a you know a blob of protoplasm or something, and whatever. There are different ways this might work out. But the point I'm making is, you can get cosmological evolution by just setting up the initial conditions, just so you cannot go from that to biological evolution because there's not enough information in the physics and Stephen Meyer has really done a great job clarifying this there's not enough information just in the physical structure of the universe to be able to produce life that needs new information okay and so now you've got a new design argument that can come into play on our behalf all of this, though, so none of this, what I've talked about, is the least bit intimidating to me as a Christian, and it all continues to point back to God, all right? And so that's why I can accept cosmological evolution based on initial principles, but I can't accept biological evolution because the dominoes aren't going to fall that way unless God intervenes a whole bunch of times with new information. I'm looking at the clock. I've got about four minutes, so I'm going to buzz to the end here. Um, now, what this does is, uh, to me, that dis for my purposes, dispatches a whole bunch of information, I mean, problems. I'm not concerned at all here about a person with a high view of Scripture, although then the question is, well, wait a minute. W what are you going to do at Genesis 1 and the things that you raised? All right, and, perfect. Okay, and here I'm going to introduce a, a, a word that um, is a vocabulary word to help make some distinctions. It's called, the word is concordist, C-O-N-C-O-R-D-I-S-T. Yeah. A concordist understanding of Genesis 1 takes Genesis 1 to be a series of events that can be made in concord with the scientific evidence in some sense. And this is why um, young earthers are willing to bring in the scientific evidence in favor of their view where they think it applies. And so are old earthers, like Hugh Ross, willing mm -hmm. to bring it in. Both are concordists in that they are trying to bring harmony between the series of events there in Genesis 1 and the scientific evidence that we have. That is only one way of understanding the literature of Gen Genesis 1. 
as a concordist characterization. If you have that view, especially as a young earther, you're going to have all kinds of conflicts with other scientific evidence, or what appears to be evidence, and so you've got to do one of two things. You've either got to throw out the Bible, you've got to throw out what appears to be scientific evidence. Now, I've got another alternative, and that is, oh my goodness, i got a minute and a half. That is, that maybe our interpretation, our hermeneutic, is mistaken. Classic example, the sun rises, the sun sets. Really? Oh, it must be a geocentric solar system. The Earth is the center. The sun's going up and down. Well, we know better now. We know, as a matter of scientific fact, that we have a heliocentric solar system. Okay, well, what do we make of this up and down business we see in the Bible? Ah, that's, that is the language of appearance. That's all this is. So what we've done is we have adjusted our hermeneutic, the way we understand the text, in light of well-established scientific facts about the universe. And it may be, if the facts of all the things we've been trying to describing um, are well-justified, then maybe somebody's reading their scripture wrong. That's where I think the problem is. Um, My suspicion is that a concordist take on the book of uh, Genesis chapter 1 um, is just not going to match the fact, especially if it's a young earth one, is not going to match the facts. I think Hugh Ross's project is pretty interesting. He does a really good job, but I still think there's going to be some liabilities there. What we have to do to escape this problem, final word here, Cade, is that uh, we have to entertain that it's possible we're misreading the text. And I think that's a significant possibility. High view of Scripture, we're just misreading it. And uh, that will be for another conversation. Got to go, Cade, and sweet to hear your voice. Thank you so much. Look forward to seeing you in Minneapolis if we don't talk to you before then. Greg Kokel here for Stand to Reason. Give them heaven, friends. Bye-bye.